So please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to suggest that this study will perhaps take 18 months to perhaps two years. There's a lot of material in the book of Exodus. My goal had been uh, pre-Christmas to just look at the Ten Commandments. But the more I read this incredible book, the more interested I became, the more enthralled I became. And I thought, well, maybe I should just do a simple verse-by-verse study. Of course, there's no such thing as a simple uh, verse-by-verse study. When it comes to the Holy Bible, there's no such thing as an easy verse. There's no such thing as an easy exegesis. Even John 3.16 is loaded with material. So I will suggest that this will take around two years, which, if that is the case, this will be the longest verse-by-verse study that I've ever done. This will be the first Old Testament study that I've yet to do. And therefore, as it is the first Sunday in the first week, in the first month of the first year, or a new year, I should say, it is appropriate to begin a brand new study on the first month of the first year, or brand new year, as I say. Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1, please. Now these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt, every man and his household came with Jacob. Jacob, of course, is Israel, and Israel is a person. Israel will be a nation. And here the Lord has promised the children of Israel great things. And he would promise them, along with the Messiah, who would come down the line, the land. The land is still very contentious to this day. If you speak to politicians or if you watch the news, if you have any interest as to what goes on outside of your little world, you know that the land, meaning Israel, is very contentious. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Every man. The word of God was written by men. Every great man in the Old Testament was a man. Every great man in the New Testament was a man. God is spoken of as being a man. Christ Jesus is the man. People say it's very sexist. But who cares what people think? The word of God has made it very clear that God will deal through man. Adam is the head of Eve. Christ is the head of the church. And here you've got every man and his household arriving with Jacob, heading off into Egypt, type of the world. And it starts off all very well. The last few chapters from Genesis, which I'm still working my way through, and you get many accounts of Joseph being well received by Pharaoh. He would become uh, the prime minister, second in charge. Like Daniel, he would rise up the ranks very quickly, a very powerful, very influential man. And like all of the greats in the Old Testament, would sin, would stumble. One of Joseph's flaws would be to marry a Gentile woman. And not only a Gentile woman, a daughter of a pagan priest. Moses will marry Zipporah later on. And her father is Jethro, the priest of Midian. But here we're looking at a group coming from Mesopotamia into Egypt. And they've been promised refuge. And that's what they get until things start to change. Look at verse 2, please. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Isaac, 
Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan, Nephali, Gad and Asher. You got a group of Jewish men and from those men will come the tribes and those tribes are referred to as armies. Somebody left a comment on one of my uh, revelation studies and they're asking me uh, how could it be possible that the 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation would be number one literal Jewish men, literal Jewish virgin men and the question was asked how do we know or how do I know more specifically where these people are today and the answer is I don't know, nobody knows where they are but God does. If you think about Genesis, if you think about Exodus, you've got around 400 years of the children of Israel in captivity. By the time they leave Egypt, you've got around 2 million people. And from such a figure, you've got the 12 tribes called armies. They would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they finally arrive in the promised land. And like I say, once they arrive, they are called armies and they will fight. And we will discuss that some weeks down the line, but if the Lord could pick people from obscurity, and he did, if he could organize them into tribes and armies, and he did, why can't he do the same once a church has been raptured? He knows where the 12 tribes of Israel are right now. I don't know, you don't know, nobody knows, but he does. So for me, this is no problem, no problem whatsoever when it comes to rediscovering, reorganizing, and recommissioning the 12 tribes but the difference being, in the Old Testament, yes, you've got the men leading the tribes, the heads over the wives, like I say, and they're going to march, they're going to fight, they're going to kill people. Whereas the 144,000 in the New Testament are not going to fight, they're not going to kill. And the difference between them and those in the Old Testament will be that they will have to sign gifts, like the apostles would enjoy back in the book of Acts. Look if you will please, at verse 5. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Keep your hand there and go to Acts chapter 7. I remember listening to Walter Martin uh, when I first got saved. A lot of his uh, sermons and recordings are online. And no, I don't endorse a lot of what he preached, he was ecumenical, he, uh, he was anti the King James, he was kind of charismatic, but he did believe in once saved, always saved. And he was also premillennial. And he had a phone call one day, and the guy said to him, uh, Brother Walter, or Brother Martin, I'm slightly uh, confused about Exodus 1 5. It says, How 70 souls came out of Jacob, and yet from Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, it says in verse 14, Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. And he said, Please explain this discrepancy to me, Dr. Martin. I'm very concerned. There's clearly a discrepancy. Could we suggest a contradiction? And I remember listening to that recording probably 30 years ago. And this guy, Walter Martin, a great brain, he would debate a Jesuit priest uh, back in the late 1980s on the John Ankerberg show. And as far as I'm concerned, he wiped the floor with this Jesuit priest. And yet this one question seemed to throw him, which shows he's only human. I don't care who you are. When it comes to sometimes a simple 
question marks such as this can just throw people. Acts 7, 14 speaks about 75. So 75 from Acts 7, 14 and 70 from Exodus 1, 5. How do we explain the discrepancy? Quite simply, you add Joseph, you add his wife, you add his two sons, and you add at least one maid. And that gives you 75. Go back to Exodus. Most reference Bibles, if you have a reference Bible, will say, well, the Septuagint is the main source to go by. And Stephen, when he was uh, speaking from, uh, from Acts chapter 7, was using the Septuagint. Well, I don't believe that. And they argue that the Septuagint has a different numbering system compared to the Hebrew text. I don't believe that. If you just simple, you know, if you just simply work out who comes from who, and add uh, Joseph, his wife, and like I say, the two children, the two boys, and at least one maid, you get seventy-five. There's no discrepancy. It's as simple as that. Exodus one, look at verse uh, six, if you will, please. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Ten out of ten people will die. I caught an old movie last night and there was a scene in this old black and white movie and the scene surrounded a meeting in Parliament and the Prime Minister called in a backbencher and he said, uh, all for news such and such, forget the guy's name in the movie, he said, uh, the Foreign Secretary has just told me he's got cancer and he'll be dead within six months. Such a great man. He served the country very well. He served the party very well. And he's going back to his home in the north. He's going back to uh, put his uh, seeds into uh, the ground. And he'll never see those seeds come up. He'll never see this. He'll never see that. It's such a terrible, a terrible event. It's so tragic to see uh, such a great man die. Of course, that's just a fictitious movie. But that's very typical. You've got a guy like a foreign secretary, a very senior member of the British cabinet. He's been diagnosed with cancer. He's resigned. He's going home to die. The prime minister of the day has to replace him. And within 30 seconds, he's replaced him. So easily done. And yet, if you go back to Russia, if you go back to the late 1940s, if you go back to the early 1950s, people were saying, how are we going to survive? Once Comrade Stalin dies, we can't possibly envisage any future without Comrade Stalin. And of course, Comrade Stalin died. He was replaced. No big deal. I think it was Khrushchev who took over from him and other leaders came down the line. And look at Russia today. It's never been so powerful. The same was true back in the 17th century. As Cromwell was dying, people were saying, how are we going to survive without Emperor Cromwell? That was one of his titles, which he declined. And people were saying in London, we can't survive. We can't see a future without uh, Oliver Cromwell. And... On one occasion, he was out on his horse. He was horse mad and he fell off his horse and he nearly died. And he was rushed to the hospital. Panic stations set in. Messengers and telegrams were going back and forth. This could be it. Uh, Brother Cromwell could be about to die. What will we do? How are we going to survive? And he died and his son briefly replaced him. Then it was Charles II. And here we are, what, 419 years later... We're still going strong. People think that once they pass away, nobody can survive or the country will fold. They're kidding themselves. And here it says, Joseph died, verse 6, and all his brethren and all that generation, meaning the end of an era. 
Joseph was greatly beloved. Joseph was very close to Pharaoh, like Daniel would be to Nebuchadnezzar. And such relationships were pretty rare. In fact, if you really think about it, you have to ask yourself, should Joseph have been so close to a Gentile pagan nation? How about uh, Daniel? Should he have been so close to a pagan leader, a polytheist? It says over in Second Corinthians that God's people aren't to be yoked up. And you get into all of that and it makes you wonder if some of the greats got a bit too close. There's an account in uh, Daniel when uh, Nebuchadnezzar is just thrown, just blown away by the wisdom of Daniel. And it says he worshipped Daniel. And it doesn't say that Daniel corrected him. Some have made quite a, suge- uh, quite a commotion with that verse. Some have suggested that Daniel was quite happy to receive the worship of a pagan king. It's probably fair to say that he was somewhat shocked at this great king on his knees, worshipping Daniel. But nevertheless, it's embarrassing. And not long after that, some of his friends are thrown into the fire. And of course, you know the rest. But these verses from 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 are laying the foundation They are laying the foundation for a nation, the creation of a nation. If you just think what it was like before the Lord revealed himself to, shall we say, Abraham, you've got many people doing wicked things. It says over in Genesis chapter 6 that the imagination of of men's hearts was wicked continually. You've got murder, you've got rape, you've got incest, you've got sodomy, you've got everything going on. And the Lord said, that's it. I'm not going to allow this to go on any longer. You've got the sons of God on the earth, quite possibly fallen angels of some sense, some kind, having relations with the daughters of men in a way that we don't quite understand. And giants are born to such women. And you've got just demons all over the world, just running amok. And they are corrupting people. And one guy called Noah comes along. And the Lord says, I'll use that guy his wife, his sons, and their wives, and I will save that family of eight. They will board the ark, and I'll take them through the floods, like those that will go through the tribulation, and I'll bring them out safe at the other end. And what, two million, three million, just drowned. And nobody was redeemed, nobody was rescued, nobody got a second chance, which pictures those that are screaming in hell, Lord, let me into heaven, and it says over in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Look at verse 7 from Exodus chapter 1, please. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. Very reminiscent to Genesis chapter 1, uh, 28. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So you would have thought a couple of things. Number one, you would have thought life was tough, and it certainly was. And you would have thought that there would have been some groups that just would throw in the towel, far from it. Most suicides don't concern or involve uh, poor people, like homeless people. Most suicides concerned middle-class people people on six sometimes seven figure salaries and here you've got the children of israel in bondage in slavery and i mean real literal slavery 
And it says they are fruitful, verse 7. It says they were increasing abundantly, multiplying, and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. If you go back to 1939 to 1945, you've got around 20 death camps in occupied Europe. And many Jews would go through those camps. Many Jews would die in those camps. Suicide obviously was a problem. And yet the fascinating thing about that awful period is that there were many Jews that came through it, survived it, and went on to get married and have children. And you would have thought, but who could possibly survive the death camps? Well, they did. Jeremiah would also pick up this problem. He would tell the children of Israel that were sent to Babylon for judgment to get married, have children, keep on reproducing. Which, if you think of the way things are today, and it's pretty bad today, you know, it could be said today. You know, the same thing could be said today. Get married, have a family, have kids. Don't put off, don't say it's so terrible now. Is it any worse than it was back in Genesis? Or is it any worse than it was here? Exodus chapter 1 or Jeremiah? Or is it any worse now than it was 1939 to 1945? I don't really think so. We still have freedom of speech, just about. We can still... Uh, give out tracts on the street, just about. We can still uh, hold up a sign, just about. We can still uh, preach heaven and hell, just about. We can still take a stand, just about. And therefore, verse 7 again, it says, How the children of Israel were fruitful and, and increased abundantly, and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. There was no birth control. They went into the land. They're there for 400 years. Families were born. Life was tough, but there was unity. There's a purpose. There is a sense of being. There is a belief that one day we will come through this. But you think 400 years is a long time. You think 40 years wandering in the wilderness is a long time. I wonder how I would have handled living during such times. The more I think about the Old Testament, the more I think, in fact, the more I know that I wouldn't have lasted five minutes had I lived during such an era. But thankfully, I now live in the present uh, dispensation or this present dispensation look at verse 8 please now there arose up a new king over egypt which knew not joseph happy times are gone and here you've got a new king a new emperor probably ramesses the second who has reared his ugly head he was a wicked pagan and part of the egyptian culture was that when he died his whole uh, household died with him they were sealed up in the pyramids. In fact, I caught a clip on Facebook this past week. And one of the uh, negative aspects of Facebook is if you scroll down the wall, uh, if you are friends with people on Facebook, if they embed a video into their wall, it plays automatically. I'm not a big fan of that. And I was on Facebook a few days ago, cursing down the wall like I do, and somebody, I forget, I forget who it was, had put a clip on their Facebook wall of this poor woman. It may have been uh, Malaysia or Thailand. I forget which country it was. And it said in the, uh, the description box, there was a translation of it. It said, this primitive Islamic uh, religion, and there's different strands of Islam, if you didn't know, has this awful belief that when the husband of this village dies, and you can see this guy dead, he was about 55, 60, open coffin, when he dies, 
First of all, he's buried, obviously. But number two, if his wife is alive, she gets buried with him. And I watched this for 10 seconds. I'd, I couldn't watch it. And I'm pretty thick-skinned. I'm not some, you know, easily offended kind of guy. And I couldn't watch it. And I won't go into detail because it's pretty heavy. And I thought, that poor woman. And I don't know what happened. I can only assume they knocked her out and they buried her alive. I won't go into much more detail. You get the idea. It was horrible. Just tragic to watch. And I hope somebody in the village maybe came along late and dug her out. I don't know. But that's their custom. And that custom to bury a living wife with her dead husband is a throwback to the pharaohs. And they had many strange practices, which goes back to my criticism of perhaps Joseph getting too close to Pharaoh. I know the Lord is in there. I know the Lord used that to deliver the children of Israel. I understand that. Feeding back to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And yes, Daniel was also a type of Christ, the prime minister. I understand that. Of course I do. But you see, this is what happens when you yoke up with people. Some of their traditions spill, spill over onto you and you get contaminated. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Such a people are growing, developing like wildfire. Going back to Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. If we're not careful, they will soon outnumber us, rise up against us and perhaps exterminate us. Well, that may have happened. But in reality, what the Jews were being accused of is what the Egyptians were doing to them. And Pharaoh, no fool, can see which way this may go. And we call this birth control or population control. If you think of that awful uh, policy in China some years ago, uh, two parents, one child. And as far as I know, that hasn't been uh, rescinded. As far as I know, they still practice it to this day. They've got over a billion people living in China. And many children are being born and or being aborted, some are being born and just suffocated, just left to die. And of course that is their way of life, that's their culture. China is a very uh, strange country, and yet a few days ago I was on YouTube and I came across, to my pleasant surprise, some Chinese street preachers. I wasn't expecting that. China is a police state, like most Islamic countries, and this crowd of around 12 were singing on the streets in China. One guy was preaching. And I thought just the sights of a group of Christians preaching, singing, was music to my ears. And I sent an email to this guy. And I will be monitoring uh, his channel over the next little while. You know, they may be charismatic, I don't know. But for now, I don't really care. They're on the streets. They are singing. They are preaching. They're doing more than most people are in this country. And there's one clip of the Chinese police coming along. And I thought this could go, you know, one of two ways. They could get uh, the kosh out, start uh, smacking these people around their heads, as the police in China are known to do. Or they could be more diplomatic. And praise the Lord, it was the latter. Yeah. The police had a word with the leader of the group. I assume he was... 
the pastor, and they brought their street preaching to an end. They seemed pretty happy with that. I guess they had made their point. So it's good to see that. It's good to see Christians in China on the streets. There are probably millions of Christians in North Korea that we don't hear much about because they can't communicate with the outside world. And if you go to South Korea, tens of millions of Christians. Nine and ten again. And he said unto his people, this is Pharaoh speaking to his lieutenants, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mighty than we. Who would have thought that? Come on, sense of urgency. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, internal or external, that when there falleth out any war of any kind, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. We have to do something now because if we don't, they will overtake us. You know, would it be possible that just perhaps they will preach Jehovah and perhaps lead Egyptians to the one true God. 11. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Fithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. It's absolutely fair to say that when the Lord puts a screws on a Christian, when the Lord puts a Christian into a difficult situation, when the Lord allows a devil to work over a Christian, like you find in the book of Acts, Christians prosper. Christians dig deep into scripture. Christians shine like their saviour. But if you don't put the pressure on a Christian, if you just allow a Christian to do his or her own thing, they become lacklustered. They become indifferent, lazy. Therefore, verse 11 again, they just set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, work them to death, like uh, Stalin would do in the gulags, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. It's amazing to me that people actually escaped the gulags and some were even released from the Russian gulags, and like those that got out of the Nazi uh, death camps, would go on to have women, or to have wives and children, family times. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, like that term, he's got a trophy wife, treasure city, something to brag about, like the seven wonders of the world, Pitom and Ramesses, 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 feeding into Ramesses II. And I would imagine that this term Ramesses or Ramesses is a play on words like Ramesses II. And Ramesses has named a city after himself. Twelve. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. It would have stunned them. It would have absolutely stunned them that all of the pressure, like working these people, some into an early death. And yet, in spite of all that, overworking them, killing them prematurely, they are reproducing. They are wanting to live. They have a great desire to push on. I caught an interview a few days ago concerning uh, the Jews. And one of the guys said this. He said, well, the Jews are very good at making money. And the interviewer said, that's a racial 
uh, statement to make. How dare you say that? And I thought, no, that's not a racial statement. That is a factual statement. Almighty God has chosen himself a people, and he knows that they will behave in different ways over or over the last several centuries and millennia. And in spite of their behavior, Almighty God has blessed the Jew. Because one day, the 144,000 are going to be mobilized. And I'll say this quickly, that people say, like that guy left me a question, well, how do you know, James, who the 144,000 are? Well, I don't know. But I would imagine when the two witnesses arrive, they will know. And I would imagine when the third temple goes up, the high priest will know. I would imagine that around that time, the Spirit of God will do something like he did with Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And I would imagine that when that takes place, those Jews living in Israel, I mean, at the moment, there are, what, 6 million? I would imagine during the tribulation, you may have 7, perhaps 8 million, give or take, I don't know. More Jews are moving to Israel now than ever before. I would imagine that once the tribulation begins, that Almighty God has got, he's got perhaps... Out of 10 million people to choose from, 144,000, he'll have no trouble, mark my words, he'll have no trouble picking him out, 144,000 male Jewish virgins, and I mean Jewish male virgins, I mean literal Jewish male virgins, if you want types of Christ, not Catholics, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Seventh-day Adventists, not groups of Christians, leave Revelation as it is, don't spiritualize it. Every time people spiritualize something, they lose out on a blessing. And on top of that, they force the Bible to contradict. And as a result, they make God a liar. 13. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. In mortar and in brick. And in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. I caught a clip, I think it was yesterday morning, of a pastor on a TV show in America. And he was uh, debating this homosexual leader wearing a dog collar. And I thought, first of all, I know how this is going to go. And to cut a long story short, these two started to lock horns. The pastor made some good points concerning the lifestyle of homosexuality, but he made a mistake because what normally happens is homosexuals, lesbians, sodomites, call them what you will, what they will do is they will say, well, uh, slavery was wrong in the Bible and people don't practice it anymore. And therefore they were kept down. The homosexuals are kept down and therefore they try and equate slavery with homosexuality and they say you know you've been keeping or conservatives have been keeping such people down for a long time it's time for those in the lgbt community to rise up so on and so forth and i watched these two americans go back and forth and i thought the guy in the collar is wrong he's wrong in what he's saying he's chosen his own lifestyle that's between him and the lord at the judgment but the guy sitting next to him made a statement which was also wrong. And he said this, he said, slavery in the Bible was never condoned. And I thought, you're wrong. Slavery in the Bible may not have been promoted, but it was never condemned either. And I showed you some weeks ago when I went through Philemon, what Paul would say to Onesimus, get back to your master. You belong to him. 
We need to be honest with ourselves as Christians. We need to say that the Bible did teach slavery, Old Testament, New Testament. And yet at the same time, there are verses which I will get to down the line where slaves, Jewish slaves or Gentile slaves were to be treated with respect. And there's one reference from Deuteronomy which suggests this, that if a slave escapes from his master and makes it to a safe zone, he is allowed to stay there and yet go back to Philemon. He escapes to Rome and Paul says, back you go, old boy. He doesn't say to Onesimus, you can stay with me. He says, get back to your master. You've got two dispensations. And when you look at it from that perspective, Moses seems to be more lenient towards the issue of slavery compared to Paul, our apostle, writing to those of us living under grace. Hard bondage, mortar, brick, and all manner of service in the field. They're working day and night. All their service, verse 14, wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Cause them to struggle. Cause them to suffer. Let's break their resolve. Let's try and finish them off once and for all. And I'm sure Pharaoh thought he could break the will of the Jews. If you break anybody's will, then they are just as good as six feet under. If you take hope from somebody, or if you witness somebody lose enthusiasm or excitement concerning anything, then as far as such is concerned... Their lives are over. If you can break someone's will, if you can take hope from a person or rob them of peace, joy, what have you, then it's all over for them. And the more that Pharaoh, the more that his lieutenants, the more that his cruel taskmasters, sadists, tried to break the Jews, tried to force them to capitulate, force their women to perhaps miscarry, the more they kept the Jews down, like World War Two. In fact, just for the record, World War Two. We think about Hitler. We think about uh, the death camps. Don't forget Russia. Don't forget Stalin. He killed thousands of Jews, and yet it's rarely spoken about. Most of his lieutenants, most of his doctors, were Jewish. He killed them all. He was obsessed. He was paranoid against the Jews. In fact, I think it was uh, Idi Amin who expelled uh, Jews and Asians. Uh, from his country, uh, Uganda, I think it was, back in the 1970s, a good Muslim boy, a great Mohammedan, and he kicked them all out of his country, and within a year or two, it became a third world country. And he fled to Saudi Arabia, 2006, I think it was, or thereabouts, with his five wives, evil, wicked man, never extradited to The Hague, never forced uh, to stand trial, beat the rap, like they say, There was no movement, there was no pressure from the Socialist Workers' Party to have him called to account, like what's going on in Iran today, like in Tehran today, like hundreds of Iranians on the streets today calling for a revolution. And I've seen footage of Jews in Jerusalem, and I've seen footage of Muslims in Jerusalem, because Israel is a democracy, let's never forget that, standing in solidarity with their Iranian counterparts. And yet, where is the UN? Why aren't they on the streets of London demanding justice? Why don't we see people outside the Iranian embassy in London saying, we demand that you release our people, that you call your troops off the streets, that you put your police back in their barracks? 
They won't do it, of course, because the world is under some sort of satanic spell. But here, these verses, the first uh, 14 verses in our close, are dealing with the reality of God's people going through difficult times. And here we are, some 4,000 years later, or thereabouts, as saved people experiencing our own difficulties. But I guarantee you something, there aren't many of us living today that could relate to this. If you're living in the West, or if you're living in a decent parts of the world, you have no idea what it means to suffer. I mean, to really suffer. You won't be treated like this. You won't have people standing over you, making you work 18 hours a day, five, six, perhaps seven days a week. You won't be forced to build with your hands. You won't have people standing over you with whips, causing you to struggle, causing you to, or attempting to get you to blaspheme God. You may have problems with your boss. Okay, fine. You may have to, do, you know, you may have to work two or three jobs. Okay, fine. But you go home at the end of your day, right? You have a bed that you sleep in, right? You enjoy a meal, right? You have some level of freedom, right? Of course you do. But these people, from the first 14 verses, from the first chapter of Exodus, were really up against it. And yet, in spite of everything that Pharaoh and co. would throw at them, they stood firm, picturing that verse from Jude, how we are to contend. Contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So I will close it there and like I say, reiterate and suggest one final time that my guess will be this will run to at least 18 months. I want to, with the blessing of the Lord, really open up this book and I pray he will bless this study. I pray he will bless this initial part and I pray he will bless every part over the next 18 months to two years. And I pray he will bless us abundantly in the name of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen and Amen. So we are working our way through the book of Exodus, one of my favourite Old Testament books. And last Sunday we were able to cover the first 14 verses. And I want to just read the first few again and offer one more thought, if I may. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaac, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So seventy-five souls, go to Revelation chapter 20, and from seventy-five souls around the time of Moses writing this book, or chronicling this particular event, you've got around 700,000 men. And if you add women and children to such a figure, you've easily got over 1.5 million. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 12, please. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And all the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Never mind Steve Jobs. Never mind Pa Watson. Never mind Bill Gates. When you speak about a computer, think of Almighty God. He sees everything. He records everything. 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. 
and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Go back to Exodus chapter 1. So when I read the first chapter of Exodus, and when I read the 20th chapter of Revelation, I am struck at how awesome Almighty God is. He sees everything. He records everything concerning those of us which are saved at the judgment seat of Christ and concerning those that are not saved at the great white throne judgment. So last Sunday we arrived at verse uh, 14. In fact, I'll read it again to set the context. In fact, back up to verse 13, please. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. When people speak about taskmasters or skivvies, many people indirectly and not always aware of it are quoting the scripture. And here you got the Egyptians putting the screws, as we say, on the Jews, putting the Jews to the mill. And these Jews are in bondage for 400 years. And here's a quick thought. After World War II, with Israel uh, going back into the land, maybe a decade or two, the Israeli government sued the German government. And since around the 1950s, early 1960s, Germany has paid out millions, and I mean millions, to the state of Israel concerning compensation to how the Jews were treated uh, back in World War II. And I thought this morning, wouldn't it be interesting if Israel today, uh, now uh, enjoying their capital city status, if they were to sue Cairo for the 400 years of captivity back in the day? Or how about if Indonesia was to take Holland to court? Holland was a colonial power and they ripped and they stole all the riches from Indonesia. Wouldn't it be interesting if Jakarta took Holland to court? Or if you think of other countries which have been treated badly by slavery. If you think of the British Empire, a lot of people to this day criticise Britain and her role during Empire days. But how about Portugal? They had a colony. How about France? They had a colony. How about Spain? They had a colony. It wasn't just Britain. In fact, just last night, I caught an interesting documentary about Queen Victoria. And I hadn't appreciated that towards the end of her reign in uh, Great Britain, the first mosque was built not far from her palace. And she had a very trusted aide. She was very close to this aide. And he was a man from India near Calcutta. And he was a Muslim. And it dawned on me last night that what probably happened was Victoria, up in years was too close to this Indian chap, allowed him to get very close to her, not in a sexual way, but in an affectionate way. He worked his way up the chain. He was despised by her crowd, her inner circle, and she wanted to make him a sir. And that didn't go down particularly well in London. And it cuts a long story short. Her son, the Prince of Wales, via her doctor, said to her, Your Majesty, if you don't... Renegg, if you don't change your mind concerning this very well-known Indian servant whose name escapes me, if you don't drop the idea of making him a sir, a knight of the realm, we will declare you insane. And that forced Victoria's hand, and she had to put the brakes on, 
and around her diamond jubilee she wanted to make this guy a sir like I say and for the first time in her life she had to change her mind she had to backtrack but it struck me last night that empire Britain controlling the world India Pakistan Canada Australia New Zealand the list goes on and on all those countries enjoyed British rule and yet at the end of Victoria's reign a mosque was built in Britain and I think we can trace our current problems back to Queen Victoria. Maybe she should have retired early. Look at our current monarch. Been on the throne a long time. And when it comes to her diplomacy, okay, fair enough. We don't want to criticise her when it comes to her diplomacy. But I seem to recall that she took a vow when she was enthroned. She took a vow to defend the faith. Whatever happened, Your Majesty. But we are looking at... The birth of a nation. We are looking at the creation of a nation. We are looking at a people like 75 in the eyes of their enemies. Nothing much to think about, nothing much to observe. And from 75, you've now got around 600,000 men. And they spread like wildfire. And the Egyptians, very cruel taskmasters, never mind the Soviets, never mind the Nazis, never mind the Dutch concerning Indonesia or British rule in India, Pakistan, or Portuguese rule in Jamaica, or Spanish rule, or French rule in parts of Africa. I mean, it wasn't just the Brits. The entire world were enjoying an expansion. They had their own private empires. But when it comes to taskmasters, when it comes to slavery, when it comes to people saying that I felt like a skivvy, I felt like a slave, think of the poor Jews. They've been in Bondage for 400 years, and Egypt, of course, is a type of the world. And therefore, the king, the leader, the emperor of Egypt, quite likely, uh, Ramesses II, wants to put the brakes on. If you read um, Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth, a very interesting book, he makes the case that the pyramids were quite likely built by the Jews, and he also suggests that Job was the main architect of the creation or the building of the pyramids. He may be right. I can tell you this, that I went to the pyramids some years ago, and it was a great experience for me, but I hadn't realized how cramped it was or how damp it was. And as you go into the pyramids, you almost have to go in on your knees. And I'm not exaggerating. And when you come out, you have to almost come out on your knees. It's so cramped. It's a tiny entrance in and out. It's a huge, or it was a huge uh, earner for the Egyptian government. And maybe two or three days after coming out of the pyramids, I was in great agony. All of my muscles in my thighs were sore and aching. Verse 15, please. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which of the name of the one was Shiprah, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stalls, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Keep your hand there and go to uh, Matthew chapter 1. If you think of Pharaoh being referred to as a dragon, which, of course, is another title for Satan. You know straight away that Pharaoh is a type of the devil. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 16, please. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, 
was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that to him Bethlehem, and all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Go back to Exodus chapter 1. So, Pharaoh wants to kill the Jewish boys. Herod wants to kill, again, the Jewish boys. And if you think of King James, who was born in 1566, there were three attempts on his life. And I've just finished reading about King James, quite possibly the greatest king that Britain has ever produced. And I've counted three attempts on his life. But here's the problem. When it comes to historians writing about people such as James I or even Victoria, Elizabeth I, most of the great writers, when it comes to period, period writers like Antonia Fraser or Anthony Beaver or other greats that you can think of, Scrivener as well, most of those guys and women are, number one, unsaved, number two, don't believe in a real devil. And Fraser, a lot of good stuff in her book on Cromwell and also James, completely overlooks Satan's role in the history of the world because, of course, she is an unsaved woman. She is a lapsed Catholic, a great writer, but people like her completely overlook the reality of a devil. And the king of Egypt, verse 15, spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And I love, again, the attention to detail. You've got two women both names preserved in scripture. And these women are quite remarkable. And also this goes back to my last message when I spoke about uh, Tamar and Judah. And always keep in mind, if you will, if you are a woman, don't turn your nose up at someone like Tamar. She's linked to the Messiah. If you are a man, don't turn your nose up at someone like Judah. He's linked to the Messiah. The word of God says how Christ came to save sinners of which I am chief, and that's what Paul would say. And here you've got two Hebrew women named in verse 15, and the dialogue continues, verse 16 again. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, midwifery of course, and see them upon the stalls, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. Matthew chapter 2, King James fifteen sixty-six. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Well, Quite simply, the seed will come through the boy. Israel was promised a Messiah, the Messiah, the man Christ Jesus. And here, the Messiah will be linked back to Moses. Jesus is linked to King James. James in Hebrew is Jacob. The word of God says, where the word of a king is, there's power. Had the devil been able to eliminate James back in 1566, it's almost Fair to say, if not completely fair to say, completely accurate to say that the King James Bible wouldn't have been written. And here, Pharaoh wants to eliminate the boys because the boys are the stronger of the two. The word of God says how women are the weaker vessel of the two. And I remember when we were in Hastings uh, some years ago, I got into a conversation with a guy in the streets and he took great offense at that. And he said to me, well, I can uh, show you some women who are pretty heavy, pretty, pretty strong pretty sturdy, and they can defend themselves. They can do this, they can do that. And yet, okay, fine, you may have some women that are pretty beefy, pretty butch, pretty uh, strong, but most women are not able to do what men can do. Let me give you an example. Let's say you can think of, or let's, let's think of a firefighter. Let's think of a female firefighter. She's five foot one, and it's three o'clock in the morning, a 999 call comes in. 
and there's a house burning down, a family of five, and the fire crew are scrambled, and they race to the house, and they get the ladders up, and I guess you can probably do that, and she realises that there's a guy in the house, he's six foot two. What's she going to do? She has to call one of her male colleagues or two, and up the ladder they go, or three of them, or two of them at least, and they get this guy out of the house, along with his wife and his children. That's not sexism. That's not me being chauvinistic, quote-unquote. That's me stating a fact. I've seen documentaries over the years of British police officers, female police officers, and most of our officers, police officers in this country are not armed. And I've seen these women, these what used to be called uh, women police officers, WPCs. They don't call them that anymore. It's not PC. <laughs> Excuse the pun. And these police officers now, the W has been uh, completely uh, admitted. They go onto the streets and they've come up against... Again, guys, pretty heavy, six one, six two, six three. They can't take him down. I mean, maybe three women police officers could take one guy down. What do they do? Get on the radio. Radio for backup. So here, Pharaoh knows that if he can eliminate the boys, he won't have future soldiers like Joshua to think about, or King David, or guys like Cromwell to think about. And if women arise up like Victoria or Elizabeth II or Mary, Queen of Scots, no big deal. He thinks he can probably control such people, but ultimately, Pharaoh is called the dragon, and the dragon, of course, is Satan, and therefore Satan wants to kill Moses, he wants to kill James, he wants to kill Jesus. He wants to, call, he wants to kill Jesus, because Jesus, of course, was the Messiah. He wants to kill Moses, because Moses is the deliverer, and he wants to kill King James. And like I say, three attempts were made on the life of King James. And the first attempt was made on King James when he wasn't even born. His mother was heavily pregnant and her husband, in a fit of jealousy, thought that perhaps uh, the child that she was carrying wasn't his own. And he was of the belief that she had been uh, intimate with one of her secretaries. And he wanted to get to the bottom of this. And it has been suggested by phrase and she could be uh, she could be correct that he wanted to not only kill her lover alleged lover which he would also which he would go on to do i should say uh but also that he wanted to kill mary and obviously james as well she was able to talk her way out of that moment of danger she jumps on a horse uh and from edinburgh to dunbar quite a distance uh she makes a midnight dash she's heavily pregnant six seven months pregnant and that midnight dash away from her jealous husband almost caused her to miscarry. And the damage done uh, to that midnight dash on a horseback is one of the reasons why James was disabled, can we say. But here we're looking at Pharaoh. We're looking at his desire, his wish to kill the sons of Israel. He wants to spare the women, the daughters Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. So I think it's quite possible, I can't prove this, but I think it's quite possible that the Jewish women were indirectly witnessing to the Egyptian midwives. That is picked up at the end of uh, the account concerning Esther and Mordecai, and it speaks about many of the people became Jews. Now, let me say this to you. I've been a Christian 16 years. 
and I've been to Israel, I've been all over the UK, I've been to parts of Europe, I've spoken to a lot of people, Jew and Gentile, and as God is my witness, I've never met yet a Jewish man or a Jewish woman anywhere. In fact, we were down at Golders Green before Christmas, and that's a very strong Jewish area. I've never met one Jewish man, I've never met one Jewish woman that ever witnessed to me, that ever said to me, do you know Jehovah? Do you believe in Adonai? Jews don't witness the Gentiles. It's the church that does the witnessing. But here, it would appear that, number one, the Jewish women that have been giving birth in the thousands have got close in a roundabout way to the Egyptian midwives. Not too close because the word of God says in both Testaments that God's people should never get too close to unsaved people. And yet it would appear looking at this uh, text this morning, that they've been able to soften the hearts of the Egyptian women. And of course, you can be sure of this, that God was in the background, also softening their hearts. The next uh, major account in the book of Exodus will deal with Pharaoh. And the word of God says eight times how God would harden the hearts of Pharaoh. It goes both ways. God can harden a person's heart. He can soften a person's heart it speaks about a lady called Lydia in the book of Acts how God opened her heart and softened her heart and when she met the apostle Paul and Dr Luke she was able to hear what they had to say receive what they would say and go on to become a Christian but the midwives feared God and did not as a king of Egypt commanded them but saved the men children alive so if the state tells you to do one thing and the scripture tells you to do something else. You go with the scripture every single time. Will it be easy? No. If you live in the UK, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, if you work in the public sector and you take a stand for the scripture, you will lose your job. You lose your job. You will be forced out of your home. You will face prosecution. I think it's fair to say that Britain is quite possibly the most legislated country on the face of the earth. We've had Americans come over here in the past, American brothers, and they wanted to street preach, and they wanted to do this and do that. And I've had to say to them, by all means, come over, brothers, but be aware of this and be aware of that. And if you do this or if you do that, you'll be detained, arrested. And it's been a shock to some of our American brethren because they think that in Britain we have freedom of speech, which, of course, we don't. And they think that the Second Amendment, I think that's what they call it in America, is relevant in Britain, and it's not. We're not quite a police state yet, but we're getting quite near. But here, so far, so good. And here, the midwives, uh, Egyptian, Gentile women, fear God, verse 17, quite remarkable. And therefore, disobeyed the king of Egypt, quite likely Ramesses II. And they saved the men children alive they saved the boys like Moses down the line like Jesus down the line like King James down the line 18 and the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive how dare you do this what is going through your minds they are growing at a rate which is unprecedented If we don't control it, they will take over our nation, which is almost reminiscent to John chapter 11 concerning Jesus, concerning what the uh, Jewish leaders like Caiaphas would say. If we don't deal with him, 
the Romans will come along and take our kingdom away from us. This is what it all comes down to. It's power. Pharaoh didn't want to lose his power. Caiaphas didn't want to lose his power. And here Pharaoh is giving his midwives a tongue lashing. He's reprimanding them. And he's also trying to plead with them. 19. And the midwife said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. They don't really need our assistance, your majesty. When we go in to assist them, they've already given birth. All their women are supporting the younger women. Going back to how independent Israel is, how solid the Jews are. And if you think of history, if you think of antiquity, outside of Jewry, outside of the Jews, I can't think of any race which has survived for five, six thousand years. I mean, the Egyptians now, if you go to Egypt, are Islamic. They don't believe in what Pharaoh believed in. Pharaoh was a polytheist. He worshipped uh, the sea, the river Nile. He worshipped many gods. In fact, he thought he, thought he, he was a god himself, like Herod. From Acts chapter 12, it says that Herod thought he was a god. The people said, hooray, a god has arrived, and the Lord killed him. Acts chapter 12. If you think about the popes, going back not that long ago, they too are thought of as being gods. In fact, it was Pius the 10th, or the 11th, I forget which one, who said, when I speak, I speak as God on the earth. And I got a quote from... Um, Somebody whose name escapes me, a well-known Catholic theologian. He may come to me in a moment. And he said, the Pope is Jesus Christ. I didn't say that. He said that. A well-known Catholic saint. And I've never heard a Catholic correct that. And yet, if I was to get up today and say, I am Jesus Christ, I would hope somebody would correct me. Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Joyce Mayer made the statement that they are gods. It was Kenneth Copeland who said, I am. And nobody criticized him. And to this day, he's one of the wealthiest men in America. Of course, there were some around the time that pulled him up for that. But the big boys at the top, like the Crouchers and other people, didn't say a word against it. He said, why would that be? Because he's buying airtime. He's a multimillionaire. Joyce Mayer said that Jesus Christ went to hell, was tortured by the devil, was held in hell for three days, and was a first born-again man. And about five or six years ago, Ray Comfort went on to her TV show to push his book, to push his ministry. He never said a word. Now, if I said that, people would be attacking me online, and rightly so. But when Joyce Mayer says it, who's worth $150 million, nothing from MacArthur, nothing from Comfort, nothing from the big boys at the top. Incredible. But here, 19, the midwife said unto Pharaoh... The Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, of course not, for they are lively and are delivered ere, old English, for before the midwives come into them. They won't hang around for these Gentile women to come in and get their dirty hands on them because the Jews saw the Gentiles as uncircumcised, not just uh, physically but spiritually. And the Jews uh, thought very little of the Gentiles and that's picked up also from Galatians chapter 2, when Peter became a hypocrite and he started hanging around with Barnabas, a Levite, and told the Gentiles to live as the Jews. And Paul got wind of that and said, hey, don't you say that. Don't you go around preaching that kind of a message. 
we're saved by our faith in Christ alone. And old uh, Paul clipped the wings of Peter, did the same to Barnabas, and those guys got back in line. Because it was a part of Peter which was anti-Gentile. People speak about anti-Semitism, and it is very much alive and kicking, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to say. But there's also an anti-Gentile sentiment as well. Let's not get around this. Let's not kid ourselves. If you read the Talmud, a lot of stuff in that wicked book against the Gentiles. But you won't hear people saying that the Jews are are anti-Gentile. But they are. They are prejudiced towards the Gentiles. Peter was no exception. And that's why the Lord would say that he came not just for the Jews, John chapter 10, but he came for the Gentiles as well. And that's another reason why the Jewish leaders would reject Jesus. The thoughts of their Messiah spending five minutes speaking to Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Having dinner with Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Speaking, dining, fellowshipping, showing compassion to the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? These unsaved, uncircumcised, pagan, pagan uh, barbarians. That's what they were seen as. And he says, yeah, and not only that, one day they will believe on me. And by the end of the church age, the majority of those that are saved, or the, the majority of those that believe on the Messiah, are going to be Gentile, not Jewish, like 90%. And the Jews say, we can't, we can't take this. This is a hard saying. John chapter 6, this is a hard saying. We can't take this. We can't accept this. The Jewish Messiah is going to save the Gentiles. Are you kidding us? They don't believe in Jehovah. They don't circumcise their boys. They don't watch what they eat or what they wear. Their daughters are this, their daughters are that. And the Lord said, listen, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Going back to Tamar, Genesis 38, 39, 40. Going back to Judah, Genesis 38, 39, 40. And if you don't want to... Uh, humble yourself if you don't want to lower yourself or be able to see yourself in someone like Tamar or someone like Judah I can't save you I haven't come for you and that's what it comes down to people have got to humble themselves get off their high horse stop puffing yourself up if that's what you are doing and see yourself as filthy in the sights of the Lord verse 20 therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. Well, of course. Somebody once said, it's always the right time to do the right thing. So much truth in that. God dealt well with the midwives, verse 20. And the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. Going back to the earlier chapters. From 75 people, you've got around six to 700,000 people. Excluding women and children. Go back to the miracles and the Gospels. You've got the Lord feeding 5,000, 5,000 men. Add on the women and the children, 20,000. Or the feeding of the 4,000. Add on the women and children, 15,000. Can you show me Muhammad ever doing that? Can you show me Buddha ever doing that? Or some of the Hindu gods or the Sikh gods? Just give me a couple of examples. I'm open-minded. Drop me an email. Show me where Muhammad ever fed 50 people. Never mind 5,000. Just show me 5 people. Show me 50 people. Okay. Show me 500 people in the Quran or the Hadith. Can you do it? Of course you can't. 21. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. Now, this is an unusual uh, verse. The term made them houses. And I thought, well, the only clear way to really um, at least try and interpret this would be to think of the text from Genesis 
chapter 20, verses 17 to 18, when Abraham and Sarah were en route and they came into contact with a pagan king. And it says, after a period of time of being in such a place, the Lord had shut the wombs of the king's women as a sign not to interfere with Sarah, because Sarah, like Tamar, is in the line of the Messiah. And after a period of time in such a place, nobody was given birth. No women were falling pregnant. And therefore the Lord shut the wombs up until that situation had been resolved. And here it would appear, it would appear that during this situation, this crisis from 15, 16, 17, 18 and 19, the Lord has stepped in and he has closed up the wombs of the Egyptian midwives. And that would have been quite a shock. You got maybe a period of two to three years, perhaps. It says over in Matthew chapter two that Herod would order the death of any boy that was under 18 months old, two years at the most. And therefore, over a period of time, people are not falling pregnant. Women are becoming barren. What's going on here? Something of a shock. And of course, the Lord is deliberately stopping women from uh, conceiving and giving birth. And yet, as a reward to these women, he's now made them houses. 21. Look at verse 22, please. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river. And every daughter you shall save alive. You get saved, you get baptized in water. It's a picture of life. Later on, Moses will take the children through the Red Sea. And those that were following are all drowned. The scripture can hurt you. It can heal you. Water can be a good thing. If you get baptized, picturing the new birth. Or it can be a bad thing. It can drown you. It can destroy you. Matthew chapter 7 speaks about building your house on a rock. Being Christ, of course. And when the floods, the uh, storm arrives and it beats upon that rock. You are firm. You are solid. Because you are built on the rock. The rock of all ages. And yet it also speaks about if you're not on a rock. The wind, the rain comes, mixed with the sand. And of course you've got a weak surface. A inferior uh, foundation. And of course you know what will happen. It will crumble. And you'll be washed out, uh, washed out to sea. Picturing a person who was never saved to begin with. And also picturing somebody who built their foundation on the wrong type of a rock. So 22 verses from Exodus chapter 1. And what we are reading this morning. And will attempt to do so over the next probably 18 months. Is the creation of a nation like I say. The problems that uh, that would uh, involve. The people coming up against Pharaoh. A king of Egypt. Which let's not forget was a superpower back in the day. And from 75 people to around 700,000 people, you've got Pharaoh called the devil in scripture, trying to kill the boys and failing. You've got Herod, also a type of the devil, trying to kill Jesus and failing. You've got the devil trying to kill King James, 1566, when he was seven months or when his mother was seven months pregnant and failing. And again, if you are a historian, if you are an expert or if you have knowledge of history or if you read such books as I do, 
Never be too surprised if such people completely overlook the reality of the devil. And as we go through the next few chapters, we will see more incidents of the devil trying to get in there, trying to thwart the will of the Lord. But it's like this. Once the Lord decrees something, once Romans 8.28 kicks in, you can't stop that. You can't reverse it. I'm sure Joseph was doubting his uh, standing with the Lord. He probably thought, what have I done to deserve this? I've been sold into slavery. I've been humiliated by my brethren. My father is worried, uh, worried sick. I've been accused of rape. I've been put in a filthy dungeon, a filthy jail. Is my life all over? And of course, the best was yet to come. But he didn't know that. And his faith was tested. But he hung, you know, he hung in there. He didn't throw the towel in like many people today do. He hung in there and he, you know, it all came good. And Judah, we profiled him last time. On the one hand, one occasion is in the will of the Lord, honoring his father Jacob, and then just like that, has dishonored his father, got tied up with the wrong woman. And of course, she got herself pregnant because she was waiting a seed. She was waiting uh, an inheritance, which never came. And again, if you think you are a self, if you think you're something special, or if you are a self-righteous female lordship salvationist take a look at tamar sometime or if you are a self-righteous male lordship salvationist take a look at judah sometime and see if you have anything in common with these people if you don't something's wrong something's very wrong but here the heroes have got to be the midwives two brave women who stood against pharaoh could have been put to death for that like those that stood against herod in the new testament and also could have been put to death for that. And these women uh, from verse 15, Shipra and Puah, quite likely saved, although we can't be dogmatic about that, are in the Word of God, the most sold book the world has ever seen, which is also something that needs to be credited to the Jews. This book that I'm holding this morning is a Jewish book, written by Jewish men. And if you are anti-Semitic, you are out of fellowship with the Lord. And if you are a Jew, and if you are saved, and you are anti-Gentile, the same is true as far as you are concerned. You are out of fellowship with the Lord as well. Galatians chapter 2. In fact, even James, the Lord's half-brother in the book of Acts, wanted Paul to backslide. He wanted Paul to go back under the law. He wanted Paul to offer sacrifices and do this and do that. He wanted to appease zealous Jewish believers. That Paul hadn't apostatized, and Paul, being all things told that he might win some to the Lord, agreed to that. But James, strictly speaking, was in the wrong to ask Paul to do that, and Peter and Barnabas were certainly in the wrong to cause the Gentiles to stumble. And Paul would say from Galatians chapter 1 that if anyone or anything preaches another gospel, let him be accursed, like burn forever. But the midwives here are applauded. They are named in scripture, which is also remarkable. They've been able to step in and explain what's going on to Pharaoh. But if the truth be known, they weren't really needed because the Jews were self-sufficient like they are today. Most Jews are self-sufficient. Most Jews don't really have much contact with Gentiles. They don't really integrate with Gentiles because they are a part of their own community. And here the Jewish women, the Hebrew women, are not as the Egyptian women. Verse 19, for they are lively. They are quick 
and are delivered before the midwives come in unto them. But nevertheless, the Lord commends the midwives for saying, no, we won't uh, kill the boys, we won't abort the boys, we won't take the boys, verse 22, and throw them into the river, a type of sacrifice to the God of the Egyptians. And as a result, God blessed them, 21, and made them houses, which is quite uh, obvious to me that it's always the right time to do the right thing, as somebody once said. And also, if you do the right thing at the right time, Almighty God will always bless you for it. So 22 verses, and I'm going to take my time over the next 18 months to two years as we go deeper into Exodus. Like I say, one of my favorite Old Testament books. And what you won't see in the Old Testament, if you didn't already know, is perfection. And one of the reasons why I like the Old Testament is because the good and the great are profiled, are presented as sinful people like you and I. If you can't relate to David, maybe you can relate to Joshua. If you can't relate to Joshua, maybe you can relate to Moses. If you can't relate to Moses, maybe you can relate to Daniel. Or if you can't, if you can't relate to Daniel, maybe you can relate to Joseph. Take your pick. Or if you are a woman, maybe you can relate to Tamar. Or maybe you can relate to Miriam. Or if not Miriam, maybe Deborah. Or if not Deborah, maybe Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would also be doubting the significance the enormity of her son's ministry but we'll close it there and god willing pick it up next week from exodus chapter 2